0: Hey, everybody. Don here. Um, this is an unscheduled episode to come out. Cowboy, who originally set this interview up back on August 25th of 2018, reached out to me to inform us that past WTSP guest and United States Marine Corps veteran, Mr. Robert Green, passed away last Tuesday. So we could go today. And I know since then we have picked up a lot of new users. And this was one of those interviews I did, like I said, back in 2018 that I was really, really proud of. Um, you will hear a little difference in quality of audio because of the microphones I was using back then and the way we were bringing guests on. But don't let that deter you from listening to this great episode. How often do you get to hear the first-hand accounts of a Marine who fought during World War II in Bougainville, Guam, and on Iwo Jima? Mr. Robert Glenn was a bar gunner, and so as you can imagine, um, he's seen some things and spent a lot of time on the front lines, and it was from him that I learned that they didn't use the tripods in the real-world application. You'll hear in this interview, he said, when he first got to the front lines, a seasoned or salty bar gunner, if you will, told him, hey, lose the tripod, the Japs, they look for it, that's how they distinguish the bar machine gun from other rifles. And so by removing the tripod at a greater distance, that bar looks more like a big rifle. And so he quickly lost the tripod, and he relays a lot of great information. So rest in peace, Mr. Green. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your contribution to mankind. Prayers to your family. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy. First and foremost, I want to say happy Father's Day to all of the fathers listening to this week's show. But this week, I am excited to announce that this episode features a segment we like to call With Those Who Are There. And joining us on today's show, Mr. Robert Glenn. Robert Glenn was part of Fox Company of the 2nd Battalion, 21st Marine Regiment of the 3rd Marine Division. And joining us on the phone right now... I am super excited to talk to this gentleman, Mr. Bob Glenn. Bob, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Of course, I have to use a walker in the
1: house, but outside of that, I'm doing okay.
0: So let's get started. Um, Do you remember where you were when uh, Pearl Harbor happened?
1: Yes, I was in Miami. Uh, I lived on... uh, edison court which was a housing project
0: do you remember what you're doing that day
1: well i had been over to my grandparents and i was walking back home when some somebody came out and told me about pearl harbor
0: and how old were you around that time
1: i was 15
0: 15 i would assume that it was probably a three to four short years before you enlisted in the marine corps
1: no i enlisted in 1942 uh, just before my sixteenth
0: birthday. Did your parents have to sign for you to enlist? Yes. And what boot camp did they send you off to? To Paris Island. So you were sent down to Paris Island. You were just sixteen years old, and you went through your weapons training after boot camp. Do you remember the whole process of when you left the country?
1: Well, uh, uh, when I got through with boot camp, we were—they had shipped us from Paris Island up to what become Camp Lejeune to the firing range there because they didn't have, they were processing a lot of people at that time.
0: Now, as you were saying, it was soon to become Camp Lejeune, and I'm sure during that period the uh, the camp itself was probably still underdeveloped and relatively new.
1: Well, we were, a, I w- we were still getting our mail through the platoon, you know, of uh, the, that, we were assigned in paris island okay they just cha- you know send it up to north carolina to, after the firing range that's when we were assigned to ever you know where everybody was going to go and i was assigned to the fleet marine force which i didn't have any idea what it was but i found out quickly
0: and what was your job in your uh platoon
1: um, well, at first I was just a rifleman. We were qualified first on the Springfield O three because that's what we were issued at Paris Island.
0: You guys didn't get the M one until after the end of Guadalcanal.
1: Yes, in fact, they it, they stopped the final day of firing on uh, with the O three and changed us over to the M one. So we had to spend. I think it was three or four more days to fire the M1.
0: Now, I've heard stories where a lot of the guys, they weren't big fans of the M1. You guys preferred your 1903 because you had become so proficient with it. How did you feel when they took the 1903 away from you?
1: Well, with the 03, I fired Sharpshooter. But with the M1, I just uh, fired Marksman. So then you a you know, fast change, and uh, it was something I wasn't used to, and nobody else was. We didn't make any big ex- impression with the M1 when we fired because everybody was used to u- handling that
0: 03. Well, and I assume the 1903 was probably more similar to the hunting rifles you had grown up with, too.
1: Well, I, I'd i grown up with a I. Was given a 22 rifle when I was, you know, younger.
0: Right? Mm-hmm. So after you finished your qualifying, you you got the new M1 Garand that you weren't super impressed with. Um, it definitely, as you stated, um, affected your marksmanship. But obviously, in the Marine Corps, your job is to adapt and overcome. What year did you get shipped off to go into the Pacific?
1: Well, we were sent to the the 21st Marines. And the 23rd Marines were both forming there at uh, Camp Lejeune. And I was assigned to the 21st Marines. And uh, I joined in August 42 and went through boot camp and then was sent there. And really, we were in the forming uh, process. So we didn't do a lot of anything, but, you know... Uh, marching and stuff like that. We were in a place, they called it Tent City, and that's the way we got our mail. Tent City, North Carolina, you know, and we didn't use the name Camp Lejeune or anything like that.
0: So that was the actual postage address. When someone was to send you a postcard, they would send it to Tent City.
1: Yeah. They gave each one of us a five-day liberty, and, you know... If you, uh, I, I had come from Miami, so five days to, you know, you're not going to
0: get to spend too much time at home. Well, and back then, as well as now, but back then you guys were responsible for getting yourselves to and from the camp to wherever your liberty was, and transportation was not as proficient as it is today. But after we come back from that liberty that we had, then we shipped out for
1: California, and, uh... Well, it's the first time I ever saw snow.
0: What was your impression of that? Well,
1: you know, you hear about it, but I think I sat in that train window and watched it all the time.
0: Now, at this point, before you had left Miami to go to boot camp, had you traveled much around the country, or did you primarily stay in the state of Florida?
1: Oh, no. I never traveled
0: anywhere. It was probably pretty exciting for you to get a chance to meet some new young men and to uh, see the country even before shipping off to the Pacific.
1: Oh, yeah. We were all young men. And, uh, well, we've got the California out there. At first, we were at Camp Elliot. Then they moved us up to Camp Pendleton. Okay. And Camp Pendleton, we really, they really went, and went through strenuous training there because it was... Mountains and valleys and everything. They took us to a valley that nobody was prepared for. It was so cold that we we just slept in everything we had on every night. We would go out in training and we'd be wearing overcoats and everything but the more we were out there and the sun got to us we were uh, dragging those overcoats and everything behind us.
0: Now you guys weren't issued wool were you primarily wearing the cotton HPT dungarees and the jacket with your overcoat? Yeah. Now you being yeah. from Florida you probably had two surprises being in California. One as you said the, the cold and the seeing of the snow but you grew up in a predominantly flat state. Did it take a while for you to get used to uh, the hiking on the inclines and up in the the hills? Yeah, but we didn't have hardly any mountain people with us.
1: Most of them were uh, New York City, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, all up in the Northeast.
0: So it was you from Florida and a bunch of Yankees, huh? Yeah, and our company, through the years and everything,
1: there was uh, only four of us in our company that were from Florida. Sure. And our captain that we had when we invaded uh, Guam, uh, he was killed on Iwo Jima. He was the first man that I knew of that really, you know, got uh, hit when we went to Iwo Jima.
0: Now when you shipped out of California, did they send you to Australia or New Zealand first?
1: New Zealand. We spent uh about 5 months there.
0: That was probably what 43? Yeah. And so after your 5 months in New Zealand, where was your first deployment to?
1: Somewhere along with the company, I became a BAR man. Ooh. They had one in every rifle squad. Sure. And I became the one. Well, The 21st Regiment, when we went to New Zealand, we had no we have never been together as a 3rd Marine Division, but we left New Zealand, I think it was July, and we went to Guadalcanal. And that was when the first time our entire division was together.
0: Now you were in boot camp of August of 42 and that's when the first uh, marine division landed on Guadalcanal. By the time you got yeah. to boot camp and you were, you know, stationed there at first before your major deployment, I'm sure most of the island at that point or the atoll was pretty much under control and they had some decent bivouac set up.
1: Yeah, we had uh We went into a, what they uh, had was a coconut grove. The Australians controlled it before. Mm -hmm. And we went into, and we set up every company in uh, the coconut grove. If anybody asked us on the island, because we went to different places on the island, if they asked where we were from, we'd say we were from the coconut grove. Then they knew where we were.
0: Absolutely. So you started out your career being very proficient with the 1903 Springfield. They took that away from you, and they gave you the M1 Garand. And then they took that away from you, and they sat you down with the Browning Automatic Rifle. How did you take to that?
1: Well, I didn't get a Browning Automatic. I got a Rockwell Machine Rifle.
0: Interesting.
1: It was the same thing but it was a better-made weapon. In what way? It performed better, and like after we had been to Bougainville, they had every one of the BARs examined, and I was one of the few that got their weapon back without any kind of thing being done to it.
0: And so all but the pro- a
1: lot of the Brownings had to have the barrel redone.
0: From overheating? Yes. So after your short deployment on Guadalcanal, where were you shipped off to first for your first true campaign? We went to Bougainville on March the 1st. And that's when the rain moved in, correct? <laughs> Yes, you heard You heard about it. I do a lot of research on World War II, but one of my strong points is the Pacific Theater. I spend most of my time reading up on what you and your uh, your brothers did and your uh, contribution to the war. So um, the islands in that campaign are my strong point when it comes to this history. And so I, I'm very excited to have you on. So when you guys landed in Bougainville, kind of walk me through that, if you would.
1: Well when we left guadalcanal we left
0: guadalcanal
1: on the destroyer and we went overnight to bougainville now we our outfit was in the reserve unit the ninth and the third marines had already landed ahead of us and we were the reserve and when we landed they immediately put us up to push through the front that they had.
0: When it comes to the gunman crew to the bar, do you have an assistant gunner, much like a um, a thirty caliber? Well,
1: I had, an, uh, I had an assistant ammunition carrier.
0: Okay. And so he was equipped with a... Did he have a car beam, or did he also have an M1 Garand?
1: Well, he had the M1, but he had uh, 12 uh, magazines that he carried for me.
0: You probably had the bar ammo belt. Did he have the M1 ammo belt plus a can, or did he have the bar belt as well? Well, no, he just,
1: he carried an M1, but he had uh, two bandoliers of uh, magazines for my BAR. He carried 12, and I carried 12. I really carried 13 because I, I had one that was already
0: loaded. What a lot of my listeners who may not realize is that rifle, that bar, is extremely heavy. Um, I have had the privilege to operate one, and um, I've had to carry one around for about 12 hours, so I can only imagine what it was like to have to live with one. I mean, that is a fine weapon, but it is very heavy, not to mention carrying all that ammo. Well, I, I didn't think it was that heavy to tell you the truth. Some of the other guys would
1: have their ammunition carrier carry it sometimes, and I but I never switched it off.
0: Do you remember your first night in Bougainville?
1: <laughs> yeah, I can tell you about it. When, when we landed, we immo- immediately moved up to where the front line was. And then they had a meeting up there with the, you know, with our captain and their captain and all of this. And then, because he says, told us, you know how you go in a battle formation with flankers out and all that? Well, he said it wouldn't work in that jungle. Too thick? They just started off going up through there, following the Numa Numa Trail, which was... uh, Almost about as wide as a jeep would go on anyway. My platoon was put in reserve. We were to escort the uh, telephone people, anything else that they were going along. We escorted them up there. Well, when we got up there to where the company was, it was kind of disorganized. We had lost every officer except the officer of my platoon, which was behind. And when we got up there, he was the only officer that we had left in the company. And our battalion uh, assistant, uh, he was Major Fussell was his name. He got killed. And... uh, well the japs were shooting from the trees and on the ground too. They were up in the trees facing the way we were traveling. So you didn't see them going. You got past them is where they and they immediately picked off everybody that had a 45 automatic.
0: That's because they had realized that primarily only officers carried the forty-fives. Am I correct?
1: Well, some of the sergeants did too, uh, the upper ones. But uh, when we got up there, it was just a bunch of shooting going on, and you couldn't. <laughs> I got behind a tree, and that and bullets hit right over my head. So I moved around it, like a quarter around it, and it happened again. I went around the, where I was halfway around it, and it happened again. And I said, good gracious, I, I wasn't doing nothing but going in circles. But uh, we didn't get into the actual combat that the ones that had been before us. And But our uh, top sergeant, who happened to be a, uh, a fellow by the name of Scott, he got the Silver Star because he took control and told everybody, dig in right where you are. And so that night, we dug in right where we are, and uh, <laughs> they tried to send troops up to help us, and we pinned them
0: down. Now, had the rain already started at this point? Uh. That my
1: that first day I don't know I don't recall about the rain to tell you the truth, but after that day it seemed like you could set your watch with four o'clock in the afternoon that it was going to rain.
0: Well, and the reason I point that out for our listeners who aren't familiar, that rain caused so much mud, your foxholes would fill up with water, and so you're you're trying to stay what they called in the ground to get below the fire. But you're, you know you're sitting in essentially a you know a, a hole full of water, and you once again you have your rifles, your ammo, you're trying to stay low, you're trying to protect yourself, and your battle buddies, all while slipping and sliding through wet vegetation, in the super thick mud, which made surviving and living in that environment that much worse. And that's the only reason why I want people to realize about the rain because it wasn't just a quick downpour and then everything was fine it, it really made things hard on you guys
1: well it got to where if we were anywhere where there was standing water if we dug down it was to dig dirt up that we could get on that was dry you know what i mean that wasn't sure
0: and not to mention with standing water comes mosquitoes
1: well I, i've been in a where i dug down to get a foxhole and Wind up sitting in water all
0: night. Absolutely. We so, had that happen quite a bit. And so how long were you in Bougainville? We came...
1: Uh, we came back in January to Guadalcanal.
0: And do you remember any other um, major combat actions during that time?
1: Well, uh, every time we moved, we set up line... And uh, and we just kept moving on like that and setting up a line. The resistance was not uh, not very much pushing on because the Japs couldn't get anything over the mountains.
0: Now, when it came to laying out the lines, you had your riflemen, you know, in one area. Machine guns and, and uh, automatic guns like the bar tend to draw more enemy fire. When it came to laying out the front lines, were you kind of put off away from the riflemen? Were you right in there with them? Were you behind them? How would the layout go of when you guys dug in to create your front lines?
1: Well, let me tell you something about that bar. It came with a tripod on, the, on it. Mm-hmm. And when I got up there, we were passing on through the front when we were escorting those people up there. And some guy hollers at me and he says get rid of that tripod. He said, they look for that. They know you got an automatic weapon. If you, if they see that. So, Off went my tripod into the jungle, and I never never had any problem where I think I was picked
0: out. That was really good advice because, yes, the Browning Automatic Rifle is a machine gun, but but from a distance, the silhouette of it, the outline of the rifle itself, once you take that tripod off, it doesn't have the appearance so much of a machine gun like the Browning M1919s or the thirty Cal's. And so that was actually really, really good advice on his part. And I would also imagine that the wing nuts that you guys use to adjust the tightness of that tripod, going through that vegetation, staying on the ground, I would imagine that probably got snagged on your haversack, on every branch, every vine, as you're traveling through the vegetation. So you probably also had the extra benefit of not having those wing nuts get snagged on everything.
1: Well, I'll tell you something they did. We, when we got back to Guadalcanal... The VAR men had to go, like every Sunday, to a firing range, and we fired. But they gave us a tripod to put on when we went. They knew that we didn't have them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But they at the range, they gave us a tripod to, to use, and we'd take it off when we left. We never carried a tripod again.
0: At the front, above the um, barrel, it also had the, the wooden handle that was on a hinge, so you guys could carry it from that as well. No. Yours didn't have the handle on the front, on the top?
1: No. Didn't have a handle on the front. We didn't have them.
0: So after Bougainville, in the rain, and providing reserve combat action, you guys got sent back to Guadalcanal for some rest and refit. After you were in Guadalcanal again, where was your next campaign?
1: Well, at Guadalcanal, later on, we boarded the ship again to go invade uh, New Ireland. Okay. But evidently, whatever we were doing was a fake thing to get... uh, See, there were Japanese that uh, still had radios on Guadalcanal that told every time ships come in and everything. And uh, they pulled that off to to go, and the troops up there in that part of the islands and everything moved. And that's when the 1st Division, I think it was, invaded uh, New Britain. Mm-hmm. Then they unloaded us off the ship. Then we went back to just regular training on until we boarded to go invade Guam. You know, General MacArthur was a smart general in, in the way that he bypassed islands and everything, and it isolated the Japanese, and they couldn't continue on their supply, and that was in his mind, I guess.
0: If I remember correctly, I, I believe his whole strategy... Was to isolate rabble. I'm probably not pronouncing it right. Rabble where the you know the Japs had their main Navy fleet coming out of. You figured instead of invading it. Let's just capture all the surrounding islands that provide support. Instead of having to invade it we'll just cut off their supply lines. And just let them die in the vine if you will.
1: Yeah. Well we boarded the ship to go to uh, invade Guam. But we spent fifty some days on it because we were scheduled like four days after they invaded Saipan they Guam, but the Army division that was supposed to back up the operation was called in on Saipan, and so we had to spend fifty some days on board till they got a division from a to come out to back
0: us up. Now, was that 53 days on a um, carrier ship or on your LST? Yeah,
1: on a transport ship.
0: That had to be a long, hot, confining 53 days because the living quarters on those ships weren't exactly um, spacious.
1: Well, I was tell you, suffered when we first got on there. It seems like the captain of the ship says, them last Marines he had on there stole everything on his ship. So you're gonna stay where you are most all of the time. Well they finally got our general to talk with the admiral or whoever he was in charge of the whole ships and uh he finally relaxed. On that fifty three days we moved we got up to uh near Quadlin and we spent quite a few days there and they loaded fruit cans of fruit and everything and put them on the deck of that ship and he says i don't care about you eating them but don't waste any in other words if you're gonna open a gallon can of peaches have enough guys around you that you're gonna all eat them
0: absolutely i mean obviously when the first marine division they landed on guadalcanal uh the george s elliott had sank I think within three days the Navy pulled out, and so those guys had spent a lot of time on Guadalcanal with no real supplies. They were surviving off of what little food rations they had, plus rice and anything they found on the island. And so this admiral was under the you know under the guise of hey, food is at a premium here. Luckily we have supplies now, but there's absolutely no reason to waste perfectly good food when there's guys still on the front line who could who could use it.
1: Well, they would. Uh, we could go. Sp- they, where the ship was was in the, uh, that we were in was in the middle of a of a a toll. Mm-hmm. And what it, if they would let us go swimming every day? They'd take us by the boats and they'd bring some food out there for us. And we'd swim and we got a lot of exercise that way.
0: Other than swimming, did you guys just do a lot of uh, make work or did you guys just sit around and waste time? I mean, how did you guys spend your idle time other than swimming when you are stuck on the ship?
1: We played cards almost all the time.
0: What was your uh, preferred card game?
1: Well, we played uh, casina mostly and uh, pinochle when we went to Guam. We had to land in those alligator landing path which they'd take a squad and each one of them. And, they, you know, when we got on the land, we had to jump over the
0: side of it. So you guys still didn't have the rear ramp on your... Uh... No, we didn't have any of that. How far of a drop was that? Was that about six or seven feet? Yeah, something like that. And so you guys probably had your upper haversack on for your light landing. You had your your Browning and uh, your helmet and your ammo. Well, belt.
1: everybody that went in carried something extra with them, like they might give a coil of rope to one guy, uh, or they gave you extra bandoliers of ammunition to carry in, and uh, whatever they handed out, you took. Sure. When you got on the beach, you dropped everything like that. They had people that were supposed to pick it up, you know, and everything.
0: Now, did you drop your haversack, too, or did you leave that on? We dropped it. Lighten your load, easier to move? It, uh, you were free, except for your rifle, your ammunition that
1: you carried.
0: And, of course, the most valuable thing of all, your canteen.
1: Yes. We carried... I think when we got to Guam, they had issued us an extra canting. Sure. I think we were carrying two on when we got to Guam. Because, like, when we, our battalion was the only battalion that reached their objective on the first day of landing. We kind of paid dearly for it because uh, they kept at us for about three days.
0: Do you remember what exactly your guys' first objective was? Was it a landmark? Was it a, um, a gun emplacement? Was it a bunker? Were you just told to gain so much ground? Do you remember what your first objective was? Well, we came in and
1: we actually had a couple of guys that got burnt with the links from the cartridge belts of the planes that come in straight in ahead of us. Sure, and they. <laughs> them little links and everything, they dropped out, they were hot as hell. We were faced, uh, we called them cliffs, but we were able to climb them, so it wasn't straight up and down cliffs, but they it was, was not easy climbing, and I guess that's why the Japs weren't defending that area very much, because they... Didn't think that that's what we do is climb up them
0: things. Was the terrain on Guam, was it a lot of coral? Was it just dirt? What was the terrain like? Well, you know, Guam
1: had a rise up from, well, I I don't know how to explain it, but like it, uh, you had so far in and then everything rose up to another level. Okay. And that's where we climbed those, we called them cliffs, because they were very hard to get up. But when we got to the top of them, we were on the top of the ridge, and we dug in up there. And, well, it was just easy for our machine guns and everything to cut them down.
0: Did you have the high ground over the Japs, or were you guys basically... Yeah,
1: we had the high
0: ground. And how long did you guys remain dug in on top of the cliffs?
1: No, we were there for three days, and then they relieved us. we had we had pretty quite uh casualties up there. Did they you... had a hard time getting the guys that were wounded down and the ones that were killed like my best friend was killed on the when we got up there the first day, but yet had a, on his grave marker and everything, said that he was killed a day later. But he wasn't. He was killed the day we landed.
0: Now, was most of the fighting, was it heavy during the daytime, or was it a lot of nighttime fighting? Most of
1: it came after dark.
0: Yeah, it seemed to be their uh, their mode of battle. Yeah.
1: But we would we were also, you know, sending up players. And when they, you know it just light up like good daylight and everything, and so we could see them coming.
0: Now, at this point, was the fighting on Guam heavier than what you experienced in Bougainville?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. It involved a great deal more people. Like, it's I, our whole battalion was up on this thing. But when we went on Bougainville, it was just our company that went up the way we went that got in that fight up there with them.
0: Probably on your second day, you're up on this cliff. You've been dealing with heavy uh, night fighting, a lot of charges, relying heavily on the flares to help provide visibility at nighttime. Did they just uh, keep coming, or was it in short waves? What was their modality of... uh, It was like
1: in waves, but the uh, E company, which was to my right, they broke through them, and we even with the flares, I could, you know, see the fighting that was going on up on that ridge. But uh, they never broke through where we were.
0: Well, when you're staring down watching E Company engage in battle, and the Japs had broken through, it was probably very frustrating for you, because it's very limited on how much effort you can provide once the Japs are in the line, because you would risk friendly fire.
1: Well, that's the thing that bothered a lot of people, especially in my outfit, because in my squad, we lost one man on Bougainville, and that is because he got out of his box hole at night. That was a no-no.
0: Yeah, that was rule number one, because...
1: And if he I'm... got out of his box hole and was crawling to another guy. And that that guy shot him and killed him. So, you know, but we were all together. That was the only man we lost on Bougainville. And, uh, you know, so, and that fellow was still with us. Well, he was a good friend of mine, too, and he got killed later on. He was my ammunition carrier.
0: Do you remember the gentleman's name so we can all remember him? Lloyd Martin. Lloyd Martin.
1: Yes. The fellow that got killed, his name was Newman, Alfred Newman.
0: Alfred Newman.
1: Floyd Martin was the one that killed him, and after Bougainville, he became my ammunition carrier.
0: And then you lost him on Guam.
1: Well, that was one thing that I never could understand. On the on the 23rd, they took us off of that ridge, and we went we went back down to the level ground and we spent the night there and we got up they said we were going to attack through this ravine that they had and uh, so we started off in the attack and Floyd Martin was uh, my ammunition carrier and he was right he did, well he always stayed right next to me because we tried to use the magazines that he had, you know, first he'd hand them to me, and, uh, well, the Japs come running up with a machine gun, and I fired on it, and then all hell broke loose around us, and I didn't know it, but then somebody says, we're going to withdraw for a plane strike, and... So when they said withdraw I got up and moved back and uh, Floyd's still laying there so I said and a fella come running up and he knocked me down running <laughs> but I you know, I got up and he says, Come on, we gotta get back before they strike and I said, Well I gotta get Martin He said he's dead. He got shot in the head. Well, I went back, and I sat down and unloaded my BAR, and I started to cry. And they said, get him out of here. And they took me out to the hospital ship. Well, all they did at first when I got there was interview with a doctor, and then they got me in a ward where they had uh, on that ship, and they said help the corpsmen in there, you know, with things like getting a urinal to the guys that needed a urinal. Well, the pajama pants that they put on... This nurse came through, and she noticed the blood on the back of that my pajama pants, and she took me into an office and pulled my pants down and There was a piece of shrapnel that had not gone in, and it was somehow irritated by the pajamas and it bled.
0: Had you known the she, shrapnel was in your leg?
1: I didn't even know it
0: so you're just so exhausted.
1: Yeah. She went and took the strap out, put a band-aid over the place and took me into a doctor and says, this fellow's not wounded bad enough to be here. And he says, uh, okay. I said, send me back to my outfit. So they turned around and sent me back to the outfit. I was gone from my company four days. When I got back to the my squad to fellow that had the bar he says here you could have this thing and okay so it was just you know going back to what we were doing and we were really pushing on the japs because of uh, they didn't want to happen on guam what happened on saipan so the on saipan they pushed the japs up to the And then they got organized together, and they pulled their last Banzai charge, and they broke through the Marines. And they didn't want something like that to happen on Guam, so they had us pushing hard. Well, then we, we came to one place, and they said, we're not going any further. And we strung double apron barbed wire fences around our battalion and what we did then was send patrols out every day, they all went by compass readings and every outfit was sending them out but they going by compass readings and we'd go out so far, turn and go a little ways and then come back and We went out like that quite often. Well, it it was a little bit later in the thing that uh, we got the replacements while we were there. And we got a a new officer and uh, a bunch of these guys, and they said we want, they sent me as a BAR man and a fellow by the name of Bill Curry. He was a BAR man. And uh, we had a sergeant, Sadowski, and uh, another sergeant, and I still to this day can't remember what his name was. But anyway, we went out on patrol with these replacements we had in the lieutenant, and the instructions were, don't fire until you let somebody else know what you're going to do. Well, I was uh, in the tail of it. I was there was only one man behind me in the patrol. You you kind of went on this patrol because it was jungle to go single pile And uh, all of a sudden this fellow behind me turns around and he fired all eight rounds in that M1 and the clip flew out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I asked him, I said, what the hell are you doing? We're not, you know. He says a Jap stood up over there and looked at me, and I said, "How do you know it was a Jap? You know you haven't ever seen one before, sure, but anyway, the lieutenant come back there, and the sergeant and they told uh, me you know to go out there and look see what he was shooting at and bill Curry well Bill Curry was up from me about oh I'd say." 20 feet or more of them, and we stepped out there, and I hadn't gone very far, and there was a big tree in the in the jungle, and as I stepped around it, there was an officer kneeling with a Miller millimeter automatic, and I saw the flame come off of the muzzle of that thing, but he didn't hit me. I don't know how in the world he ever missed me being that close to me or anything, but I didn't miss him. In fact, I got the automatic that he fired at me with and uh, was keeping it as a souvenir. But huh. then the, because I killed that Jap, the lieutenant says, I want you to lead this thing. You're going to be the point man out there. And I said, I've never done anything like, hey, you've been in combat. And we got to ask somebody that knows what they're doing out there. So they put me out in front. And we went a little ways. And I say the Lord was with me because I heard things nobody else heard. And I turned around told you know, held my finger over my mouth, you know, in a silent position and i moved on and i went around a huge tree that had been uprooted in a, one of them longswings they had and as i stepped around it a jap jumped right up in front of me in fact he was so close to me i couldn't raise my rifle i just squeezed the trigger where i was at well a sergeant had come up behind me when he-and another one was running off and he shot him But then we turned around and moved on, and as I came into an open ground, I was out in the middle of it, and I noticed some japs behind a big tree that was off right at the corner or, you know, edge of that little opening that I'd walked into. Mm -hmm. So I just stopped, and I turned around, and I motioned for the sergeant to come up. He came up and I said, now look over my shoulder, but don't, you know, act any way or anything, just look. And he says, yeah, I see him. I said, all right, then let the others know that we're going to shoot. So he went back and let them know, and then he came back to me. And I said, you take the ones on the left of the tree and I'll shoot at the ones on the right. Well, it was two on the left and two on the right. I didn't see but one, and I shot him. Well, the second one started running off, and I shot him, but he was carrying a suitcase. And when I got to him, I opened up the suitcase, and the suitcase was full of Japanese money, good Japanese money not occupational money
0: so it wasn't the Japanese peso it was actually Japanese money from their homeland yes so
1: when we well I I shot another Jap a little bit further on but
0: what happened to the suitcase did someone uh, take it back to uh...
1: well I I gave it to one of the guys and told them to carry it which they did And when I got back, they came and they, you know, they wanted to know everything that happened when we get back. Sure. And when we had that suitcase and they opened it up and it was all, they had some guy from headquarters come in and he says, that's the real stuff. And he told me I could have, one bill of every denomination that they had in there and i took one of every one that was put in there and i sent it home but uh they said they could use that in other places i don't know what they meant that they could do with it but
0: do you th- why do you think they had it? I mean, was, was it the payroll? I mean, well, it's not like the Japanese soldiers could do much with it on Guam other than send it home, but I don't imagine they had their their mail system up and running. you have any speculation on why they had the suitcase full of money on Guam? No.
1: I don't know anything about it. But, you know, they don't tell me anymore about sure. it. Sure. Later on... I shot a Jap that he he had a sash around it, and there was a great big bulge in it. And I cut the sash up to see what that thing he had in there. And it was a tin can. Well, in that tin can, he had a silver dollar, half dollar, and quarter of American money. Nothing, that was all the money he had in that can. It had a bunch of other crap in there, and I took it and turned it over to somebody, and they never told me anything about it, so I don't guess it ever meant anything. It had some girls' rings in it, but uh, they never did tell me anything. But... I had never seen a half dollar like the one that that Jap had. The silver dollar and the quarter were just common coins back then. Sure. But the half dollar, I had never seen one like it before, so I kept it. I still got it.
2: That's incredible. But it was a
1: eighteen sixty two seeded liberty seeded half dollar and I had never seen one before and i but I kept it
0: that's got to be very sentimental for you what i said that has to be very sentimental for you
1: <laughs> well in
0: uh
2: did you? We
1: never did. The Japs never did get organized on our island. So eventually they had set up headquarters and we returned back to a part of the island where we were all, our entire division was there. And uh, that's where we were and we prepared. They told us that we were going to go, you know, uh, we were going somewhere. And we boarded the ship that wound up taking us to Iwo Jima. But we were really scheduled to go to a small island off of Okinawa. So they would move the troops down close to it and the invasion of Okinawa would take place. Well, the operation on the Jima didn't go too good. Sure. Thousand and some guys got killed that first landing. Well, the next morning, we, we woke up the next morning, and they said, we're going over the side land on the Iwo Jima. Well, we got in the Higgins boats, or, you know, the landing boats, and we went out there six o'clock in the morning. We stayed in them boats until almost four o'clock in the afternoon. We couldn't get in to land. So we went back to the ship And then we went over the side the next morning and we got to land about, they had beached two ships and they, one landing craft could get in between them that had protection from the fire of the Japanese. And uh, we landed that way. And... The next, that night they said, come on, we're moving to another place. And we went up on the first airfield and started going towards the end of it. But evidently the Japs knew something about the movement because they started firing cannons and mortars on it. we run for our lives. And we got to the end of the island, and they say, we're going to move through the outfits in front of us and move out in the attack. So that's when our captain got killed. He went up to make contact with the troops that were we were going to move through, and he got killed. And next thing you know, it was about, oh, might have been nine o'clock. We were still sitting there, and some officer comes along and says, what are y'all still here for? We haven't received any orders. And he says, we're going to move out and attack. Well, we got up there, and there was a, guy sitting on a machine gun, and we said, we're going to move on out in the attack. And he said, you don't have to go far. They're just right out there. Well, they had sent three tanks up to lead the attack, and the Japanese had knocked every one of them out. Ooh. And we got up and we were moved to one tank and as we started moving around it bullets started hitting that tank and me and two other guys dove underneath that tank we never saw what was shooting at us or anything else but we were under that tank and we stayed there and about I don't know, sometime in the afternoon, a guy comes up and says, you guys better get out from under here. We're going to tow this tank back. So we got up. We moved up to uh, where some rocks were, and we sat there because we didn't, and you couldn't see anybody else around. So we didn't know what the hell was going on. Well, it got dark and they turned around and along comes a guy and says, any of you guys there says, come on, we need to over to help E-Company. E-Company got shot up pretty bad. Well, one reason they got shot up kind of bad was... uh, Another outfit on the island went and fired on them because they thought they were Japanese. Well, well, we got, them, we got them back to... We carried wounded back to the aid station and everything.
0: Now, were they mistaken for Japanese because they went out further than they were supposed to when advancing, or was it just mass confusion?
1: What they had done was, you know, these... Uh, Abutments where they back planes into. Uh huh. Well, they had gone over them, and they run into heavy Jap fire, and they started coming back over those things, and that's when everybody started. I mean, it was somebody in the Fifth Division that was far to our left started shooting on them. And they fired cannons on them, and which hurt E Company pretty bad. And we went over and were helping getting them back. I'm gonna tell you, that night there wasn't any front line, and me and the two guys that were under that tank, we were wandered around. And we found a Japanese gun emplacement uh anti aircraft fire emplacement now this is in february and it was cold and they had a front move through there that rained and made everything more uncomfortable
0: had you been issued your m41 jacket or did you just have the p41 um, utility jacket
1: we had the utility jacket
0: which to those listening is essentially nothing more than thick cotton and when that well, cold front moved in it was I mean It
1: wasn't very much, I can tell you that. We found this gun emplacement and we got in there and there was Japanese blankets in there and we wrapped up in them blankets in that gun emplacement place and uh <laughs> of all things one of the guys turns around and he says, Well there was fleas in my blanket. Uh. <laughs> well, I don't know about any fleas, because I never had any uh, that I knew of or anything. I didn't have any bites.
0: Now, were their blankets, the thick wool, similar to what you guys had, or was it made of something else?
1: Yeah, yeah, they were similar to what we had. They were not, you know, we had them uh, dark green blankets, Mm -hmm. and these were white with a blue stripe on them.
0: Similar to your guys' towels?
1: Yeah, but uh, the next morning, then we finally got organized up with our platoon and everything, and uh, they decided that uh, we were going to attack the. No, that day. That day we didn't do anything, and I was sitting. You didn't dig foxholes. You you got in shell holes. And I was sitting in a shell hole, and all of a sudden, I look, and here's the biggest thing that I ever thought I'd see being shot at me. But it was an 8-inch shell from a cruiser, and it fell short of me, blew me out of that hole. And when I came back, I I was going to start to eat a can of meat and beans. And, well, I don't ever know what happened to it, because I never... And uh, they fired four rounds, and all of them were short. And our sergeant went down, and he told that Navy guy that was telling them, you know, how to fire, he went down and told him, if you fire another shell in here, I'm going to kill you.
0: So it was friendly fire that was coming in on you?
1: Well, he was on land, and these shots were coming behind the lines or you know where we were and uh well they stopped and then the next morning we 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 got on the edge of the second airfield and the lieutenant told me he says you run across and then we'll send guys behind you and you get them spread out
0: is this the same one who put you on point during the combat patrol if that's why he continued to put you these charges.
1: Well, I got I got promoted to corporal okay. after that, and they made me a fire team leader. The Marine Corps changed the lineup of a squad every invasion we made. Like when we went to Bougainville, I was the only one with the BAR. When we went to Guam, there was another guy in my squad that had a B.A.R. So we had two B.A.R.s to a squad there. Well, when we went to Iwo Jima, we had three B.A.R.s to the squad. They had three fire team leaders and there was four of us. There was, I was a fire team leader. We had a what the gold scallop? One guy that was supposed to be out front, and we had a B.A.R. man in him. He had a ammunition carrier, and we had three of these groups in a squad.
0: Okay. And
1: uh, when they sent me across that airfield, I was a I was a fire team leader. Well, I run across, and where I run across, I run right over a Japanese pillbox, and it was active. And when I got over it and scrambled a w- little bit away from it, the other guys started coming. I said, war- I warned them about the hole, and I told them it's active. Well, they dropped, some guys dropped hand grenades in there, but uh, there was shell holes, that you know, things. So I was in a shell hole, and... Uh, our sergeant he got across there and he was to my right and he says we were facing a japanese big gun emplacement and uh he says anybody got any rifle grenades and i i said i got a launcher but i don't have any grenades and so he says well this other fellow pipes up says i know where some are and he run off And he come back with a satchel that had rifle grenades in it. So I fired on that uh, gun emplacement, but it hit the side, and it was like powder or something. And it just dropped off. It didn't explode or anything. He said, well, that ain't going to work. Well, about that pillbox that we would packed that, that we thought was knocked out, all of a sudden, hand grenades started flying out of it but they were falling short of us. And uh, I was in that shell, there's another fellow in there with me. And all of a sudden one of these grenades landed right on the edge of it and rolled down between my legs. Well, I jumped out of it, but I jumped right into another hand grenade. And well, I got wounded. And I, I knew that I couldn't get a corpsman Because the one that was with our platoon, I saw him get shot, so I knew that he wasn't available. So I just went off and started walking off, and I walked down to where I found the the line of the 5th Division, and there, Corman went and he worked on me there.
0: Where did you get hit? He told
1: me while I was laying on the stretcher, he says, look up there at that Mount Cerbacci, Ned, that that, that was when the flag was flying. I told him, I said, man, I said, that's the first sign I've seen that we might really be winning. They took care of me and sent me out, and they took me to a hospital ship.
0: Where did you get hit?
1: Well, I got hit in the left arm, chest, and, uh, well, in my left arm, a piece hit that, what, some people refer to as that nerve that they call the funny bone. Uh-huh. Well it hit that and I thought my arm got blown off, really. And because I I couldn't feel nothing. And I was holding on to my wrist as I went walked back and I fell down one time and them guys in that line of a fifth division that say, come on, gonna, you can make it. Come on, you can make it Didn't nobody run out there to help me, but when I dropped this, started falling, I dropped my left arm, and blood just poured out of my sleeve of my jacket, and well, then I got to the corpsman, and he worked on me. They sent me to the hospital ship, and uh, being wounded, they cut your clothes off of you. They... They cut on your shoes. They just cut the laces completely off and pull your shoes off of you, cut your pants, legs up, and, well, of course you have a belt on, but they pull the belt off, and the same way with the jacket and everything, they cut that off, and they give you a gown and stuff. And on a hospital ship, they put you in it like it's almost like a basket shape like a human body you're not you're not put on a cot or anything like that but they had them and they were either two high or three i can't remember but i know the next day they took me in and they of course they knocked me out what they did their operating and the doctor came back to me after they had put me in the bed he come back to me and he said We took that piece of shrapnel out of that nerve, and he said, you might have to have it operated on again to get the feeling back in. Well, then I had a stroke of bad luck. Next morning, I couldn't move, and there was a doctor in the basket next to me, and he went and turned and called the Corbin over there, and he said, you better get something. He said, this guy looks like he's got scarlet fever. Well, I didn't know anything about anything. But anyway, they, they had doctors come to me. then finally, they had the doctor that was in charge of the ship come and the captain of the ship. And when the captain of the ship came back there... I heard him say, "If this man's got scarlet fever, I won't be able to unload anybody off of this ship." Well, they come to find out that I got a—I was given two different sulfur drugs after they operated on me, mm-hmm. and I got a
0: acute
1: reaction from it,
0: which so, gave you temporary paralysis.
1: Well, almost.
0: It's um,
1: one guy says, doctor says to me that you know you've got the symptoms of leukemia, and leukemia affects your kidneys. And I hadn't, well, I I hadn't urinated or anything. But anyone they went down to Guam, and I, I was unloaded and sent to an army hospital, and. The Army Hospital, Oh, when they came in there, they says, this doctor says, give him plenty of fluids. You know, well, the next thing you know, I was swelling up. And he says, we got to get him out of that bed and walking. So they had a big nurse there. <laughs> she was bigger than I was. But she took me and started walking me out. And the next thing you know, I said, I got to go. She took me in there to urinal, and good gracious I, my knees like to gave out from under me for relief
0: I can imagine
1: but i mean I, after that i didn't have any didn't have any more troubles except with my left arm, and i couldn't I couldn't handle things in it I, I, it's like i didn't I didn't know whether I was holding on to it or not if it was. Something small, I'd drop it. But anyway, I got up and walking and everything. And then they, they started saying, well, since you walk, we're sending you down there to this Marine place. So I didn't know what it was. But anyway, they sent me, and there was a few others and everything. They sent us to this, what they call, Marine camp. But they had just bulldozed fields flat. And they had to turn around and they come out there and there was they dumped a tent on the ground. They they had so many of us over there and said, You gotta put a tent up here. Put it up in line with the other ones and this is where you're gonna live. Nobody of the well people that like dumped the thing wanted to help put up the tent. And we had. They said, "No, you got to put it up." Well, I couldn't use my left arm. There's one guy that was in my company that he got shot through the leg. It never hit the bone or anything, but uh, the bullet went clean through, and he was limping pretty bad. But anyway, we had to put up the tent. We put up the tent, and they had a very small mess hall set up for us. And so you, when you got in line for breakfast, when you got there, you just turned around and got in the line again for lunch. It was that long and that slow.
0: So you but, spent your days essentially waiting in line for your next meal as you just finished eating the previous one?
1: <laughs> then the next thing I know, they had two doctors that set up, and everybody had to go through them. And if they thought you were... Wounded, he healed up good enough and everything, they sent you back to EWO. Well, the guy that, got, that was in my tent that got shot through the leg, he says, he's still limping, but he says, they're going to send me back up there. Fly him up. Oh, man. But when they turned around and finally got around to talking to everybody, and when they found out that I was a third division Marine, which was that was where our headquarters was was on Guam. Well they said, "Oh, we're going to send you back to your company." So they sent me back to the where the third division were I had been had a place and everything before we went to Iwo Jima and I was there two days and they and then they started coming back from Iwo Jima. And that was late March. And uh, they hadn't got back and we're back two days and they turned around and said everybody that was in the original company and everything, we had been overseas for over two years. They said, you're going home. Well, some of the guys had got to drinking and everything which they didn't care about that when they came back from Iwo. And they were in the group that was going to go back. <laughs> but they they didn't know it until the next morning when we were supposed to get, be ready to go. But anyway, they sent us down to the harbor and put us on a Coast Guard ship that had run aground in the Philippines. And it had come to Guam to get into the Um, what do you call where they repair those?
0: The boatyard?
1: Well, that isn't what they called them. Uh, But anyway, they said no, it was only going to be open for first-line ships. And so that's the reason they put us on it. And they told us that you're going to get to Hawaii if this ship goes into the uh, repair dock there. So you have to get something else to get back to the states well we got on in it. it wasn't very fast ship or anything but we got to hawaii and they got turned down in hawaii but they wouldn't let us get off the ship so then they turned around and they took us to san diego it was a pretty good long boat trip considering that they couldn't travel but so fast sure and uh thought it it's their dry docks. There you that go. They put them in. Yes, sir. To fix them. That's what they wouldn't take them in at Guam or Hawaii, either one. But we come back to the
0: States that way. Do you remember what month you got back into the States? Um, it was in April. Well. Now, had you had any communication with your family up to this point, or was it a surprise when you got home?
1: Well, it was a surprise when I called them from San Diego. But I I was in for a surprise. When I got home my father who my mother had divorced two or three years before I went into service, he was sitting in the living room of the house when I got there. I didn't like him. And uh my mother and him had remarried, so I got a big surprise.
0: Not a good one though. You weren't <laughs> a fan.
1: Well he was an alcoholic. I gotcha. And that's back in the, in them years before if he worked which you know the depression was on. Mhm. If you if he worked he went and drank it up or gambled it away before he ever came home.
0: And so instead and of I providing like Yeah, instead of providing for the family he went out and worked and then wasted all the money and you guys were still scrambling to find a way to survive.
1: Yeah well that was one reason my mother Finally, signed the paper for me to join the Marine Corps was I could get thirty-seven dollars a month sent to her and allotment. So, and I had a younger brother and a younger sister. My older brother had tried; he had tried to join the Navy before the war, but they, after he was uh, in Norfolk for a while. They turned around and discharged him, said he had something wrong with him that he had before, you know, he got in the service.
0: Now, since the war ended for you after you got wounded and you got transported to a hospital ship, does that mean all your souvenirs and all your personal effects were left behind?
1: Yep. Except, uh, well, when the guys came back, there was a fellow that, uh, well, it was friend of mine, but he turned around and he said he'd come and he had uh, a bunch of Japanese hand grenades. And he came back and said, Bob, this is what got you. And I said, can I have one of them? And he said, yeah. So I've got it.
0: Had you sent that uh, half dollar home previously or did you have it in your pocket when you got hit? How were you able to keep that?
1: Well, I kept it in my pocket. Or, it, you know, that's where I kept it all the time.
0: And so you got lucky enough that when they cut your uniform off of you on the ship that they they set your personal effects that you had on you aside so that you were able to at least yes. keep your lucky coin. Yes,
1: they do. They put it in a kind of a little sack-like your nope. wallet or, or, you know, anything that was personal.
0: Now, I want to go back real quick because you said something that was amazing, but we kind of skipped over it. You had gotten hit and you're laying on the litter and that's when you looked up and saw the American flag that had just been raised on Mount Sarabachi And you had said to the corpsman, that's the first thing you had seen since you had been there that gave you any hope that you guys were winning this this, uh, operation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We had been this was the fourth day that I was there and it still didn't seem like we had taken any you know enough ground to keep on and we were losing men too fast
0: and so you kind of felt like well for lack of a better term had been spinning your wheels that you weren't able to get any traction to take any real advancements on the island
1: yeah well it's like those tanks that were supposed to move out ahead of us in that attack and they all got knocked out right practically in front of us and you know Hey, you ain't too happy when you're in a position to where you see those things get knocked out, and you're going to have to go around them and try to find the enemy.
0: Sure, because they they were the ones you guys called in when all the Japs were held up in bunkers and caves. I mean, they played a very important role in your advancement throughout the island. Well, that's the same
1: way with that pillbox that we thought got you know, dropped, knocked out because the guys dropped hand grenades. But I, I tell you the truth, I don't know how, but, you know, just in a little while later, they're throwing hand grenades at us.
0: Well, from what I understand, obviously a lot of time has passed and they were able to study a lot of those pillboxes after the war. Apparently they had concrete partition in them. And so if you were to throw well, a grenade... Well, they must
1: have had tunnels somewhere yeah. that they could also replace if anybody got killed. I don't know to this day. I do know when I look back one time I saw a guy drop a hand grenade in there and it come flying back out and uh, so evidently they were knew they were going to have trouble that way and they were able to catch it when it came to them and throw them out. I don't know if they, you know, did that with all of them or not, because I was kind of busy doing other things.
0: Absolutely. You're a man with a lot of responsibility. I want to thank you very much for your time, and even more, I want to thank you for your service and everything you have done for our country.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.
0: And I greatly appreciate your time, sir. Okay. Thank you. Good night. All
1: right. Goodbye.